BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 150. We're talking about the differences between men and women in exercise programming. We have Claire Zai. I almost called you Dr. Claire Zai because like, I just feel like it's going to happen. But we have Claire Zai. She's not in the studio. She's in a studio and she's on our podcast today. Claire, what's going on? Not much. How about you? Just starting Wednesday off great. That's right. Living my best life. We're not supposed to date the podcast. You know, that's what they in the biz say. But I guess since we don't have like an ad roll that we read before in the middle and and after every podcast, maybe this isn't a business. Maybe this is just uh, edutainment. So like, don't date the podcast. Don't say what day it is. Don't say what time it is. People don't need to know. But if you're wondering, it's Wednesday, August 4th. It's 937 in the morning, Pacific Standard Time. (laughs) (laughs) We're doing this. Uh, Okay, so yep, today we're going to talk about the differences between men and women in exercise programming. Claire is a bona fide expert in this. She's recently pub- published a series on uh, the menstrual cycle and uh, exercise performance. It's on our website. We'll link all that in the description below. But first, Claire, if people have been living under a rock with respect to barbell medicine, or this is the first time tuning in to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, welcome, by the way. What, what's, what's your background? What's, who are you and how did you get here? So I'm a competitive powerlifter and I have my master's in physiology. So I went to school in Colorado for my undergraduate degree and did a one year accelerated master's program at the same university, uh, getting my degree in physiology with a emphasis or the lab I worked in was biomechanics. Is it the buffaloes? Bison? The buffaloes. 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 Okay. So you went there, you got your master's. Uh, how long have you been competing in powerlifting? This will be my, I'm about to hit my third year mark or I just hit my third year mark just okay. recently. So I started in 2018, like May of 2018. I competed the week before I defended my master's thesis, which mm-hmm. is stressful to say the least. And then I've been competing now for, I just finished three years. So I've done like six competitions, six or okay. seven. 
And then, so what recent, most recent meet was at Raw Nationals. How'd you do there? Raw Nationals was great. I placed second, which was awesome. I was really proud of that. I totaled 500 kilos, which is 1,100 pounds mm-hmm. and um, pulled uh, benched all-time PR, squatted close to an all-time PR and deadlifted an all-time PR. So. Yeah, they were all meat PRs, but I think they the mm-hmm. bench and the deadlift were just all time like you never had lifted that much weight. Period ever. Correct. Yes. Awesome. Crushed yeah. it. Yeah. Meanwhile, I got to sit on the sidelines and look pretty. So I <laughs> you do a like, great job looking pretty. That's right. Yeah. Cameras yeah. had to had to pan pan to my reaction. Um, every video or every photo I have of my bench press, you're somewhere in the background, and you're very blurry, but you look very pretty. All right. Yeah. That's yeah. the best. You know what? That's that's how I think I, I look my best is blurry and pixelated. You're like <laughs> low low res, uh, and you're and you're coaching people currently. Yeah, correct. Yes. So I work for Barbell Medicine. I work for you, um, and I have a wide range of clients ranging from competitive powerlifters all the way down to or all the way to people who don't compete at all and just want to stay healthy and fit. And I really enjoy training women. Yeah, I think that's like we either get one of a very like polarizing view with barbell medicine. It's like, oh, you're only working with athletes, right? Or you're only working with Gen Pop. And it did, and I say you, when when I'm saying you, I mean they're referring to just the organization as a whole. And it's like quite literally, we have everyone from the tip of the spear in sport to this is actually going to be your first workout ever, and everyone in between, which is great because get to learn a lot of different strategies to get people uh, not only meeting, but also exceeding the current exercise guidelines, a lot of troubleshooting stuff, particularly with the pandemic, you know, like how do you get a, you know, 60 plus year old individual who's never been into a gym before to start exercising at home in a manner that, you know, fulfills the exercise guidelines. Cause it's not just, Oh, go for a walk or like, you know, move around your house or do some chores. It's like, okay, well, we're gonna have to like squat, but you've never squatted before or a lunge. How do you do a lunge? You know, what's and all this other sort of stuff. So it's cool working with everybody in between versus the person, you know, who like me is like, you know, I'm going to set up a gym in a storage unit so I can lift weights. You know, it's just diff- different, different, uh, kind of cool to have all that experience, uh, and, and broad scope. Uh, so you're currently coaching, uh, you have clients, you're also actively like doing some research. So before we hop into this week's to- uh, topic, what's, what's up with this research thing? So I'm working with a couple of, actually a couple of my clients who are either involved in research or who have good research questions to kind of look at how people come into contact with barbell sports and how they start training barbell sports. So the goal of the research is to determine the barriers and resources that people have access to when they are training and figure out kind of what is going to be best practices for us to continue to get people involved in research. And so the research is a, takes like a 15 minute questionnaire, that 15 minute questionnaire, I can, we can link it and all you have to do is be training twice a week for the last three months, not including COVID. So if you like weren't training with a barbell for those two or like that year and you had a three month period prior to that, we'll accept that. And so you just answer this questionnaire and help us figure out kind of what the barriers are and what resources you've had available to you while you've been training. And we're trying to determine what 
on a population level what those barriers are in a broader scope. Yeah, I think that further characterizes some of like the uh, or maybe some different strategies that could be used to promote resistance training just at a population level. Right now, the limitations of our data as far as like, okay, how do you get people to exercise? Like where, like where we start is, okay, it's a good idea for your medical provider or and medical professionals to like be recommending this just at, at you know, in while they're in the trenches. Reason being like people still, despite uh, some, you know, maybe public mistrust of authorities or whatever, still do tend to listen to their doctors uh, insofar as like one of the biggest barriers to people starting resistance training is this fear of injury. Over 50% cite like, hey, I'm afraid of getting injured. And when they ask like, where do you get that narrative from? It's from a healthcare professional. And so it's like, okay, so starting there, we need to like reduce that. Thing two, we ha- uh, have decent data on like how many people we need to counsel. When I say we, I just mean healthcare professionals. Like how many people do we need to counsel to get one person to be exercising, to pick up exercise and keep exercising like a year later. And that number is 12, meaning that you need 12 people to come through your door and tell them that to exercise, you know, and this is like a very, uh, wide ranging sample of behavioral change, you know, strategies and techniques that the professionals are using. So probably I would guess most of it is like, Hey, you should exercise. <laughs> and some people are like, you know, uh, going a little bit further in, in depth as far as, you know, specific prescriptions and, and, uh, handling concerns and this and the other, but you got to, we need to counsel 12 people to get one person to change. And if we can further characterize, uh, or elucidate rather like what's getting people into the gym or how they're getting into it, that we might be able to reduce that number, um, and, and get more people resistance training. Because I think that one in 12, that number needed to treat as mostly for the aerobic guidelines, just because that's the easiest to assess with like an accelerometer or something versus like, do you go to the gym today? How do you verify that? Right? Like it's kind of hard to do. So we'll plug that. Uh, there's a link to the survey in the description below. We should have a significant uptick in respondents, <clears throat> people listening, just, you know, don't pause this thing. Now you can listen to this podcast, but then later when you're back, go to the show notes, click Once the link. you're out of your car and no longer driving. Yeah, correct. Yeah, exactly. Once once you filled your brain with new information, uh, you can head over, check that link out, share it with your friends. It'd be cool to get some more data there. Very cool. And then finally, before the last thing, you're going to med school. I mean, that's that's the plan, right? So people know like that's their trajectory. Do you know what specialty you want to go into? I waver back and forth a lot. Um, I think I would like family medicine based on kind of the information that I've gleaned from you and the information that I've gleaned from other physicians that are influences in my life. Um, But that being said, I also have a strong love for women's health. uh, And so OBGYN always seems to interest me. And obviously I can't stop talking about periods. So (laughs) <laughs> women's health so yeah. probably should be at least somewhat interested in those specialties but everyone tells me it changes the moment you get through year three and four so don't pick it now yeah yeah i think firmly committing to any particular one before you actually know what you're getting into is probably not best practice but interestingly i, I had a really great experience on my ob rotations uh both in in residency and then in medical school i really did like it um but ultimately bbm one out. Uh, yeah, I could see you doing OB. All right, we'll see. We'll circle back. We'll have like a, an update show years from now when we're on episode 550 or whatever it is. Yeah, all right. Uh, okay, 
So again, topic of this week's podcast are what are the differences between men and women when it comes to exercise programming and maybe program design. So all of you programming nerds, if you're like me, you're going to like this one. I, I I can guarantee it. Okay. So Claire, first question to you. When it comes to strength training, so we're just talking about getting stronger, whether it's maximal strength or high velocity strength, also known as power or strength endurance, whatever. When it comes to strength training, what are the main differences at baseline between untrained men and women? What would you expect to see differently between them? So if I had a man and a woman come to me in tra- and wanted programming or wanted training and neither of them had trained before, what were the what are the differences? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so if I got those two individuals and they had the same training history, which is none and the same influences and they had the same goals, I would make them the same program if they had the same goals. So typically when we get a, when I get a client, I say, all right, what are your goals? What do you want to do? What is everything that you see in this program? Like, what do you see your training looking like? I'll program around that. And the fact that they are a man or a woman does not influence how I write their program. Yeah. Just despite there being some baseline differences. Yeah. I think I would agree with that. Just like, yes, we know that there are differences between men and women just from a, I mean, a lot of different aspects. So not only physically, but also like in a social, you know, sort of setting uh, with respect to sport and strength conditioning. Uh, But as far as like, how do you, from the front end, alter an individual's programming, maybe there's not really a role for, for gender in that. because so we, we just don't know how an individual is going to respond. And that's going to be a kind of a theme I think we're going to keep coming back to. But just for the listeners at home, if uh, you were wanting like a quick and dirty, like what are the biggest differences between men and women? Um, so there's some physical differences we could start with. So height-wise, men tend to be taller, about 10 to 15 centimeters, which has a profound impact on their muscle carrying capacity. So just taller, larger individuals tend to be able to carry more muscle mass than shorter, smaller individuals. Um, also, uh, the hematocrit, uh, so red blood cells, um, which carry oxygen around in the blood, tends to be higher, about 10 to 12% higher in men. So from a sporting performance standpoint, being able to carry more red blood cells, being taller, being able to carry more muscle mass may have a profound impact on performance given the same training histories, right? They're just physically different. People are going to really geek out also on the hormonal milieu as Claude Bernard, famous physiology guy, uh, would refer to. They're going to talk about testosterone as this as being like the main determinant of performance or really placing a lot of weight on that. And I think if people are familiar with Barbell Medicine's content on testosterone, uh, the party line isn't that testosterone has no effect on anything ever, but rather the effects are likely overblown by not only mainstream media, but also just uh, people in the social media space. You know, you got to optimize your testosterone or if you raise your testosterone, this is going to happen. Uh, the <clears throat> the real kind of 10,000 foot view here is that within normal ranges, testosterone levels do not does not predict performance for either men or women or really explain the differences in performance. Um, so men in general, testosterone levels sort of range between 250 to 1,000 nanograms per deciliter. depends on the lab and the assay, the assay or test being used, but uh, it's usually 250 to 1,000 nanograms per deciliter. And if you're a man and your testosterone levels fall within that range, like I cannot predict whether or not a, high, a higher value or a lower value is going to improve your performance or change it otherwise. Meaning like if your testosterone level is 800 versus 250, I don't expect the person with 800 to have a higher level of performance and the person with a 250 level to have a lower level of performance. 
it's going to change day to day. Uh, it's going to, your training is also going to influence it. So people who exercise a lot, for example, when I talk about saying a lot, I don't mean like three times a week. I mean like five times, six times, seven times, 10 times, more times per week, um, can actually get what's known as exercise hypogonadal male condition. It's effectively a guy who's exercising or training or, and or competing regularly who has, uh, hypogonadism, meaning their testosterone levels below 250, but has no other signs or symptoms of hypogonadism, meaning their sex drive is normal, muscle mass, training response is, is, you know, not compromised because by definition they're competing at the highest level of sport. That's, it's just an interesting finding. So it's like, okay, so testosterone level does not tend to like correlate very well in men. When you look at data across like elite level performers, you just, you see no relationship in uh, between testosterone levels that are within normal ranges in men. Now, if the testosterone levels are lower, well, all bets are off. If you're like actually hypogonadal and you don't have exercise hypogonadal male condition, uh, particularly if it's from another cause, so for example, obesity, alcoholism, HIV, or just you know this primary hypogonadism where you're not producing enough testosterone, uh, yeah, replacing or restoring normal hypo, you know, testosterone levels is likely to increase your muscle mass and, and strength, uh, response to exercise, but, uh, and similarly taking more testosterone that is normal. So super physiological doses of testosterone. Yeah. There's a, tends to be a dose dependent relationship, dose dependent response between testosterone levels, uh, and strength performance. But again, within that normal range, no real differences. And the same thing with women. We don't see a, a difference if you're at the low end of the women's range, which is like 20 to 60 nanograms per deciliter versus the high range. And you actually see some crossover. Some men who perform at the elite level will have testosterone levels that are normal for women, cis, cisgender women. So um, the whole idea here is, yeah, testosterone levels maybe in utero, uh, around the puberty area uh, time timeline rather, Androgen sensitivity, androgen receptor sensitivity, those all likely play significant roles in like their trajectory of an individual, particularly with respect to performance. But the actual testosterone levels during times of training or uh, sporting performance, probably unrelated, unless we're talking about folks who are very, very low or very, very high. Uh, So that's like from a physical standpoint. So men tend to be taller. They tend to carry more muscle mass uh, because of the bigger skeleton. So about 10% more lean body mass. And about 10% less body fat. Women have the reciprocal kind of relationship. More hematocrit, more red blood cells. Testosterone levels are different sometimes, but not really sure how that plays a role. Um, And then the participation tends to be different between men and women in sport. And it varies, obviously, by sport, by culture, et cetera. Uh, And it's not just participation in sport. It's also like participation in um, sports organizations, So like at the highest level of sport, you have these organization bodies that are making the rules for sport and the rules of sport, um, way, way underrepresented for women. And so that kind of trickles down into just having a reduced participation by, by women. And so when you look at the actual like performance differences between men and women in sport, yeah, on average, we see a 10 to 12% gap in performance between men and women, uh, across many, many different sports as the sports get longer, more endurance or water-based, that gap tends to narrow. And then as the sports get shorter or more upper body dominant, that gap tends to grow. But a lot of this needs to be looked at through the lens of like equity. So like how long have men been competing at this level? What are the incentives for men to compete at this level? What are the opportunities for men to compete and train at the sport at this level compared to women's? 
Biggest example being like Olympic weightlifting with respect to strength sports. Like women could not show up and compete. There were no Olympic level uh, opportunities for women to compete in weightlifting until 2000. Yeah. Like, you know, decades later. And, um, you know, that's kind of reflected in the lack of parity or the previous lack of parity across women's uh, Olympic weightlifting at the Olympic level. Like China held nearly all of the women's records <laughs> for, for the longest time. Um, so anyway, there's some differences at baseline between like how you would predict a man and woman is going to perform a given physical task or sport. But those changes to recapitulate what you said, those differences probably do not beget or do not deserve unique programming adjustments. Yeah. You would agree with that? I would agree with that. I would add also that the social influences that we're talking about within sports are significant when it comes to starting to train a woman because of the narratives that they come to training with. So if I got um, a man and a woman who wanted training and they both came without, they're like both untrained, the narratives that the woman has when she comes to start with training is gonna are going to be different than the narratives that a man comes with. So women are going to be more likely to maybe need some emotional or like more support verbally being like, you can do this. Um, You're capable of all of these things, moving these heavy weights. Whereas a lot of men are like, I can do this and I have no problems doing it. And so the, the narrative that I have to break down or the narratives that I have to break down are going to be a little bit different between men and women. Yeah. I I think there's probably also some selection bias too, that we probably get just, you know, the people who are seeking us out are probably like more gung ho or, or, you know, Hey, I'm ready to go lift. I want to get stronger. This is important to me. And so maybe that's different. And maybe they have different environments as well, where it's obviously like, getting stronger is, uh, not only allowed, but also rewarded, you know, versus like if, it, if somebody had a lot of barriers to doing it, what are the odds that they even Googled barbell medicine or came across our stuff? So yeah, definitely some interesting points, but it kind of leads into our next question. So you're coaching mostly women, you coach some men, but you coach a lot of women. Um, do you, what do you find yourself doing routinely differently routine? We're going to have to think about how to say that. What do you find yourself doing differently on a regular basis based on gender with respect to like exercise programming? So not just handling concerns, but necessarily like programming wise. So when, when I have, uh, the goals are just often different for those two groups of individuals. So women are often and not always, but often more concerned with a particular aesthetic or the aesthetic that they are looking for is different than what a man is looking for. And that can change programming slightly. So exercises that they find enjoyable might be different. Exercises that support their goals might be a little bit different where a man might want to get really, really strong in squat bench and deadlift where a woman is like, I really enjoy hip thrusts. And there's totally Mm -hmm. nothing wrong with that. Um, Both are great exercises and we're more interested in loading people rather than the way that we are loading them. So the goal would be to not worry as much about, um, or for me, the goal is to not worry about what 
exercises we are doing, but that um, adherence is good and that people are actually enjoying their training. So the, the goals are often the most different thing. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think there aren't obviously any, you know, men specific or women specific goals that, you know, are upheld throughout every individual. So the goals are going to vary by individual. And, and there's likely, if you looked at a, you know, cross section of the population, maybe you see some trends towards like different goals, but I don't know. Um, it just kind of seems like whatever the individual's unique goals, preferences, resources, et cetera, are, you just kind of meet them where they're at and then ultimately try to hit the main targets of like exercise programming fundamentals, train all the major muscle groups multiple times per week through a relatively large range of motion that's specific to the goals. And if there are no specific, you know, goals, then just through a relatively large range of motion, making it feel kind of uncomfortable, getting kind of close to failure and then adjust as necessary. And within that, there's no real adjustment based on gender, age, ethnicity, et cetera, which is kind of what's reflected in our, one of our favorite papers, the Atianen paper. Like if this is not the first time we've mentioned this paper on uh, the podcast, so we'll link that in the description below. If you haven't read that yet, check it out. The idea is that they, uh, they took these group of uh, very diverse individuals, different age groups, different uh, genders, different ethnicities, and exposed them all to the same training intervention. And none of those factors predicted training response. So how strong they got, how, how uh, uh, much their muscles grew, whatever, it was effectively unrelated to their gender, age, or ethnicity, but rather just individual like genetics and like responses to training. Um, so it's not just genetics, but also just, there's a lot of other epigenetic factors too, nutrition, intake, et cetera. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it just jibes perfectly with what you, what you were saying. Um, do you think it's fair to say that you would not expect men or women to have different responses with respect to strength and hypertrophy given a, with a, to a given training intervention? Yeah, I would say that's fair. I would say that it's more dependent on a person's individual, like you said, individual training response and not on their gender. I will, how they do during training will fall out at the end and we'll see, and then we'll make adjustments to their training based on how they responded to a training, not based on whether or not they're a man or a woman. Yeah. Or a particular ethnicity or, or age. Exactly. And that's repeated in the data over and over again. It's like the relative improvement in strength and or hypertrophy, depending on what the study design was, shows that men and women do the same on average. Yes, men will have an, you know, be lifting more weight on average. So absolute load, but the relative improvement. So like 10% gain over an eight week study is the same between men and women. And you're going to have some individuals that are outliers on the, you know, cool end where you're a hyper responder or over responder or robust responder to training. You'll have other people who are more on like the accountant side of things. They respond poorly. Obviously, if you're listening to this, the we're not poor talking accountant about you. who is just as jacked <laughs> as we are. The hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, call me. I need a jacked accountant. Like. <laughs> Yeah, but it's the idea that none of these things like predict how someone's going to do is just reflected in your programming process. And, and I would say it should be reflected in all coaches' programming process. You, you can only make changes to somebody's program if you have a strong hunch that it's, you know, they're going to respond differently to this, to a particular thing. And you can, I feel like you can only do that retrospectively. 
like after you've been training them for a while and you're like, well, you seem to respond pretty well to this compared to this. So maybe we'll do this going forward versus like, well, you're a woman. So it's unlikely for you to respond like a man does to this particular training, which is reflected by the evidence. So like until evidence comes out to the contrary, like what are we supposed to do? So what about all the training programs like just marketed towards women? What's up? Like, what do you think that's about? So training, I am very passionate about this and I'm going to try and not throw anyone under the bus, but people who are making training programs based solely for women are trying to sell you something and it's that training program. And they're trying to make money off the fact that you think you as a woman think that you need a specific training program based around, I don't know what, but, um, they have somehow marketed this program in a way that says you are different. So you need something that is special to you and we're going to mark it up 50% because it's pink. Ooh, the pink tax, the pink tax, except the pink tax is just actually real. Um, so overall, I think most of those programs underload women and, uh, play to frailty narratives and Mm. make women think that like, Oh, I'm, frail. So I need to be careful or, um, Oh, my period makes me weak. So I need to train differently during different parts of my menstrual cycle. And, uh, in reality, you don't have to do yoga for two weeks and then strength train for two weeks. You can strength train the whole time. Yeah. And do yoga too, if you want. I mean, if you wanted to, yeah, that's fine. I mean, it's not my preference, but, um, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I go back and forth with this. It's like, if, if the advertising, marketing, et cetera, that's geared towards women ultimately captures more women and gets them into the gym that they otherwise wouldn't, is that worth the potential harms of building that your fragile flower special, you know, like kind of, is, is it worth that? I think there's I, a way to do it where you don't have to use that frailty narrative. Yeah, You I can agree. make something that is less, I think a lot of, not BBM stuff particularly, but a lot of stuff that is presented for the gym or for gym goers is always in black and red, um, always written in this like weird, scary font and uh, has a lot of like vernacular around fighting and violence, which just doesn't appeal to a ton of women. And so even just like changing the way it, like the information doesn't change when I write stuff for women the information is the same it's mm-hmm. just now in a different color scheme and maybe a little bit more approachable and has a woman doing deadlifts instead of a man and the information isn't different but you're still capturing a female audience maybe a little bit differently yeah yeah i do wonder like maybe the information should be more neutrally filtered i would struggle to say oh there's certain like narratives that are predominantly male and narratives that are predominantly female in the in the strength conditioning world, but I certainly think there are preferences that probably, you know, are, are brought, you know, more broadly held. And so I'd be, you just do an AB test really, as you would say, you on the Facebook pixel, if you were putting on an advertisement or like a link, like an article or promotion or something like that, you would, uh, you know, do it in different colors, different copied, you know, whatever, and the information would be the same and you'd see, you know, which one got more clicks based on a given gender. So I think, yeah, that, I think you're right though. I, I hesitate when people are like, oh, it's this women's only thing. And I'm like, yeah, but what's the point? You know, like it, 
if it if it increases access or reduces a barrier that somebody has, like I'm all for it. But at the same time, I'm like, I think you have to be careful with how how it's done. I agree, and I th- I think the the biggest place we can see this is like gyms for like in the gym. So when I walk into a gym, I probably look at different things than what you look at. I look at how many girls are in there, uh, it, how loud is it, how dark is it, and do the guys look like creepy? Um, and that's kind of like the first, those are the first things I look at and mm. creating spaces that are maybe women exclusive in gyms might be helpful because sure. there is like this, I don't, I don't want to say it's threatening, but it can be threatening. Can be intimidating. Especially if really, you're, yeah. Yeah. Intimidating. If you're like new at the gym, mm-hmm. um, not only are you trying to figure out all of this equipment, but then there's these weird dudes staring at you and you're like, I don't no, this is not comfortable. <laughs> and sure, yeah. so I think that can be helpful and having that space that is just for women to explore movement that is away from the male gaze can be helpful. So. Yeah. I think some people will probably prefer that. So just individual preferences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I, I, mean, I mean, my training partners are men, so. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I always think about when like recreating what would be the perfect like training space, whatever. To me, it would appeal to a wide. I mean, for me personally, it would be like a, a 12 by 12 box that's like. Air conditioned. Yeah. Very private. And like, you know, can't hear anything on the outside and no one can hear me and it's perfect. And no uh, one can reach you by phone. Correct. And their bathroom, obviously. Yes. Um, and a Topo Chico like water, <laughs> water cooler. Did they make but, the big the big ones? Of I don't know. Chico? I'd need to get one. Yeah. Um, but if I was building like a commercial facility, I think you know there are ways to avoid the very like dungeony, grimy, potentially intimidating, you know, vibe, uh, while also still being a, a serious you know strength and conditioning facility. I've been to a lot of CrossFit gyms that I think are very well done. For example, they have great equipment, great layout, floor space, or whatever that you can kind of like it's almost like a, a blank canvas that they can then paint with their gym membership and their community's values, et cetera. And I think that would be how I would go about doing it. You know, it doesn't always have to be black and red. It doesn't always have to be dirty. It doesn't always have to be loud, you know, a very aggressive music. Although if that's your vibe, if that's the community you're trying to create, that's, that's great. great. Yeah, yeah. I'm not opposed to it. I just think if I was trying to reach as many people as possible, by definition, you're going to lose some people on the edges, you know. But big, big net. I think it ended up being more neutral. A lot, a lot of, a lot of neutral tones <laughs> in this hypothetical BBM gym space. Oh, can I add one thing? I think the gym members have a large influence, or or they have the ability to make that training space, even if it is black and red, more open and accessible to a lot of people. Uh, so when you see new people in the gym or someone who looks maybe a little confused, you can just ask like, Hey, are you looking for something? And that automatically opens a door to being like, no, I'm good. Or mm-hmm. yeah, I'm looking for this piece of equipment and it doesn't have to be unsolicited advice. It's just like, you look lost. Can I help you? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Particularly if again, the space is inviting and like the, everyone is, <laughs> you don't need to <laughs> go up to somebody who's like kind of wandering around the gym and be like, Hey, let me help you. Hey, let me help you. It's just, you know, I'm going to socialize some of these people. Um, okay. Moving on to more, I guess the handful of things that are like women specific, right? The menstrual cycle, 
hormonal contraceptives, pregnancy are all very unique to women trainees. And you are the uh, expert in this, uh, particularly as it pertains to strength sports. Um, so let's start with the menstrual cycle. Like how does the menstrual cycle affect like training performance and, and subsequently how does it affect which, how you program for a, for a woman? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So first I'm going to explain what the different parts of the menstrual cycle are, because those are important for understanding the rest of this conversation. So there's two parts to the menstrual cycle. There's the follicular phase and the luteal phase. So the follicular phase starts when a woman starts her period or when she starts menses or bleeding, and then it goes all the way to ovulation. And ovulation is typically 14 days later. uh, And then after ovulation, from ovulation all the way up until a woman starts bleeding again, that's the luteal phase. And so we break it up into two phases. It's based on some other things. You don't need to know why we break it up that way, but those two phases make it really easy to talk about the menstrual cycle. So in the follicular phase, you have this increasing amount of estrogen in the body that is occurring. And so with this increasing amount of estrogen that slowly rises and then peaks right before ovulation, that's important because we think that estrogen has an effect on training. And we'll get to that. The other hormone that we care about during the menstrual cycle is progesterone and progesterone increases. It's pretty low during the follicular phase and then increases in kind of a bell-shaped curve during the luteal phase. And at the same time, estrogen is also increasing during the luteal phase, but it just doesn't get as high as progesterone. Its concentration Mm -hmm. is a little bit lower. Those are the two main hormones we care about the most during training, um, especially in regards to the menstrual cycle. And that those are the two hormones that people either demonize or like try and manipulate. And when I say manipulate, it's in quotes because people think that they can manipulate estrogen and progesterone with like exercise or food. Um, most of the time, that's not true. You can't optimize your hormones. They're going to do what they're going to do. But those are the two hormones that we're going to focus on. So in training, women will... Um, when you're training during the follicular phase, so that first half of the menstrual cycle when estrogen is increasing, we think that you are probably more capable or the the narrative is, is that you are more capable when your estrogen is higher. We'll explore why or why not that isn't true. But so when you start with estrogen or when you start your training and your estrogen is high, there's the thought that estrogen is protective to muscle. So there's a, there are studies that show that when we take the ovaries out of mice or rats, that the rats and mice actually lose strength or they lose um, muscle mass during that time because of, because we'll unload them. And so when these rats are unloaded and then given exogenous estrogen or estrogen from outside the body, then they are capable of gaining that muscle mass and strength back faster than rats who are not. So there's this idea that estrogen has an effect on muscle and having higher estrogen would be good. So that's the first half of the narrative. And then the other half of the narrative is that estrogen seems to increase the connection between the actin and the myosin between that cross bridge in the muscle. That's also really important. But what we see in these smaller studies or in these rat studies needs to then transfer to actual training. So this is where we get this narrative of like, you're going to be stronger during the follicular phase because 
the estrogen is higher. And so this protective effect of estrogen is present and we can capitalize on that. What we need to now see is that that is actually happening in training and we're actually seeing this like increase in strength in training. So once we kind of transfer this over to women in the gym, we can't do the same study where we overectimize uh, a human because that's typically against research protocol. Um, so we'll start looking at women, the differences between younger women and older women. And so older women who have gone through menopause or postmenopausal are going to have lower levels of estrogen than younger women. The problem with this, these kind of studies is that not only are older women typically less active, so their strength and muscle mass is probably a little bit lower to begin with, um, that study is measuring kind of what is happening over a longer period of time than the menstrual cycle and the changes in estrogen levels are greater. So your changes in estrogen levels during the menstrual cycle are actually pretty small um, in comparison to the like chronic changes that happen postmenopausally when you have uh, very low estrogen cycling for more than a couple of days. And so those changes are much more drastic than what we're talking about in the menstrual cycle and also confounded by the fact that we have uh, women who are less active in general. So then once we've kind of like looked at this narrative and we're like, all right, this isn't the greatest way to test this. Then we're like, all right, so let's see if there are changes across the menstrual cycle in strength based on these hormone levels specifically. So for measuring hormone levels, uh, during the follicular phase and measuring hormone levels during the luteal phase, let's see if there's a strength difference between the two. And some studies are capable of finding some strength differences um, in like single joints. Uh, so like finger movements or bicep curls, which isn't still isn't like comparable to what we're finding in um whole body movements. So like the squat, the bench and the deadlift. So it's not the greatest proxy. So there's some comparison, but my favorite study, and I'd have to look up the name of it. I can't remember it looked like measured hormone levels at the like the beginning of the follicular phase at ovulation and during the luteal phase and measured hormones at those three points and strength at those three points. And there was not a significant difference in strength, but significant changes in the amount of estrogen that was cycling. So if we were to see a difference, we would see like higher estrogen means higher strength and high and lower estrogen means lower strength. We don't see that the changes that we see in strength are typically about 5%, which is kind of like normal changes that we see in training mm -hmm. anyways, even in men. So when we're talking about these like strength differences between or like within the menstrual cycle, we don't really see them across the entire population. Yeah. I think that's just like a, obviously a, a very women specific sort of uh, take on the hormone hypothesis being yet again disproved. And so this hormone hypothesis as it pertains to strength and conditioning was effectively like, hey, look, the hormone changes that occur before, during, and after training are very, very important to your training gains. So, for example, if your testosterone level is very high post-training, 
or your insulin levels from a dietary intervention, right? Got to spike that insulin, bro. Or if your cortisol levels, you know, were high or low or whatever after training, what's your T to C ratio, brah? All of these things you were said to have these marked impacts on training, not only acute performance, but also training adaptations. And so if that were true, what you would see are marked, reliable differences between individuals who had different values of those hormones. Um, and the meta-analysis on this that is restric- restricted, not restricted uh, to men only, but primarily just men dominated in this uh, particular research space shows effectively no difference in, in a rejection of the hormone hypothesis. The quote, I, I just, I wish I could have found it, uh, but I, I don't have it offhand. It's like, look, if this effect was so, was, uh, it, it occurs, if this effect is real, it must be so small that we can't even detect it using our current methodology. Um, and that's the way I, I felt like when you were writing this article series, kind of coming into it, I'm like, my null hypothesis, the null hypothesis here is that there's no difference across the, you know, the menstrual cycle, the menstrual phases with respect to not only training performance, but also training adaptations. And we already kind of have some evidence that maybe all of these purported effects of hormones on training outcomes and, tra- and exercise performance or sporting performance, maybe that's all just carryover. Like our expectations are like, well, if there's like a, a physiological change, there's going to be an effect logically, right? There's got to be an effect. And it's like, well, logic only works if you understand all of the factors at play. And so it's not that logic failed or logic is wrong. It's just we have, uh, we're trying to reduce, you know, exercise performance and training adaptation to like uh, a smaller set of factors or a single singular factor with respect to like testosterone in the hormone hypothesis or part of the hormone hypothesis. And that didn't play out. So it's not surprising to me that there are not reliable differences across the menstrual cycle. It is also not surprising to me that many people claim that these diff- cyclical differences in estrogen and, and progesterone uh, levels are are occurring and therefore need to be modified, you know, uh, or need to be addressed because that still happens, you know, with respect to testosterone. Optimize your testosterone, bruh. Take this particular supplement or do this particular dietary strategy or sleeping schedule or whatever. And it's like, it doesn't matter, man. It really doesn't. And even if you show like a short-term difference, like in the next, you know, 10 minutes post-training or an hour post-training, look, muscle protein synthesis was like elevated a little bit, one and a half percent. It's like, cool. Well, what happens at 12 weeks, 24 weeks? And how does that transfer over across a population? It's like this, this, this thing all comes out in the wash. I think this is a good place to talk about the difference between scientific significance and clinical significance. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So when... When something is scientifically significant, we've done a bunch of math to say, like, the likelihood that these two values are different is high, and we have confidence that these two differences actually are, or these two numbers are actually different, mm-hmm. where then clinical significance is like, oh, we recognize that these two numbers might be different, but they don't actually change management. So does it actually matter? Probably not. Right. Yeah, we see that all the time and in the testosterone, like when you're looking at the effects of different dietary interventions on testosterone or training interventions on testosterone, it's like, oh, yeah, see, this thing raised testosterone by 50 points. It's like, oh, cool, from normal to normal. Nice. Or like 
different interventions on inflammation. It's like, yeah, it went up, you know, the study will say something like 50% and really the actual change is like a couple tenths because, you know, inflammation is at this relatively low level that's barely detectable by testing anyway in healthy individuals and it's still relatively low afterwards. And it's like, that that doesn't make any difference. So, yeah. Why do we care? Thanks for the cranberry extract paper, bro. But like, (laughs) it's not going to change anything that we do. Yeah. Um, Something that may change what people do, perhaps to their detriment, has been all this discussion on contraceptives, particularly hormonal hormonal contraceptives. So to reduce unwanted pregnancy in women and or treat uh, particular uh, gynecological uh, diseases or conditions um, where people benefit from taking these hormonal contraceptives. So what does the research say about women taking contraceptives, hormonal contraceptives, and their exercise performance? That's a great question. So the research, there's there was a recent meta-analysis that looked at women's strength and hypertrophy, and their, uh, there was also another one that did endurance, which I won't speak to, but strength and hypertrophy is typically a little bit better in women who are naturally cycling. It's a really small difference, probably not actually significant like long-term as we just talked about Mm -hmm. but the the thing that you kind of alluded to is that when women are taking oral contraceptive it's typically for a reason it's either to dull the symptoms of the menstrual cycle which can have large effects on women's training uh just on an individual level women can feel like that has impact on their training and it can impact training, uh, women will want to take hormonal contraceptives to avoid getting pregnant. And you mentioned a bunch of other conditions that women take oral contraceptives for. All of this research has been done on the pill because it's the most common form of birth control. So that's how women are typically taking these exogenous hormones. And so while women might have a increase in their ability to gain a little bit of extra strength when they're naturally cycling. What we aren't considering in that kind of discussion is that women who are taking these things for a certain reason, if they stopped taking birth control and that they were no longer controlling those symptoms or they got pregnant, then training changes significantly and would have a major impact on training. So if you're taking your birth control for a specific reason and you've discussed that with your physician, then that is why you're taking birth control and those strength gains will still come. It's not like you take birth control and you stop gaining strength. You're, you'll still gain strength. You'll still be a great athlete. Um, and you're going to be able to do it in a way that fits the lifestyle that you want. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if somebody's a good candidate for hormonal contraceptive ba- based on their healthcare goals and like, and lifestyle and this, that, and the other, then there's really no need for discussion about this with respect to performance because again the results are not reliably you know showing wow there's just huge like drop off in training performance rate of adaptation etc it's like if anything it's showing you know maybe maybe a slight benefit because people can control certain symptoms better and train more regularly in addition to uh, not having an unwanted pregnancy which would derail training and performance 
much, much more substantially than uh, any potential effect uh, of oral uh, or hormonal contraceptives. And then if you're not a good candidate for hormonal contraceptives yet still are wanting to avoid unwanted pregnancy, there are options there too. Again, I think this, this like naturalistic fallacy is, has come to roost in a space where it's just like, oh yeah, well taking a medication is obviously worse. It's like there are risks and benefits to everything. There are no biological free lunches here. Okay. But with respect to exercise performance, uh, and training adaptations, that's not, that wouldn't be like a significant factor in my calculus as a healthcare provider. Somebody may have a individual like response to these things, to a particular contraceptive and that, that experience is valid. And we need to take that into consideration when it comes to like, uh, healthcare management down the road. Like, do we switch agents? Do we switch dosing? Do we whatever? Um, that that's all like reasonable. But the idea that we should be telling people, or the narrative should be like, yeah, oral contraceptives are bad at baseline, and bad because they hurt your performance. It's like one, not evidence based. Two, potentially like a nocebo effect. And, and three, also consider the alter- like the real risk here, right? Consider the real risk. The amount of people walking around who are currently meeting or exceeding exercise guidelines or serious athletes who are underperforming secondary to hormonal contraceptives is effectively, it's, it's, a, it's an error bar. It's a statistical outlier compared to the actual health problem of unwanted pregnancies. So just full on stop. And then my final bit of ranty nuance here is like, if you're not a healthcare provider, just shut up. You have no business talking about this. If you cannot prescribe oral contraceptives and you're telling people how to actively manage their oral contraceptives or other contraceptives or other medicines, just full, just shut up, stop it. It's inappropriate. And if you had some sort of, you know, licensure that I could come after, I would. I always tell people that if you are taking oral contraceptives and someone is telling you to stop taking them, that needs to be a conversation with your physician, not the random health guru on the internet. As a random health guru on the internet, I tell them to not listen to, well, I wouldn't tell someone to come off birth control, but I'd be like, don't listen to me if I'm telling you that. Cause most likely I'm trying to sell you something. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Don't listen to the chiropractor. All right. Final, final thing briefly before we get out of here, last women specific sort of uh, uh, thing is going to be pregnancy. Do you train any, train anybody who's pregnant right now? Currently, no. Okay. Yeah. I have a few pregnant clients right now uh, getting close to the end. Tom, one of Tom's clients actually like trained on the day she gave birth. That's amazing. Which I thought was awesome. That's so yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. So um, with respect to pregnancy, I'll just cover this quickly. We talked about this uh, at our seminar quite a bit. The If you're looking for guidelines, the 2019 Canadian guidelines are excellent. Uh, we'll link those in the description below. Uh, if you train pregnant women, you should refer, review those. And rather than like giving somebody very specific instructions on what they should do training wise, if they're active, if they're pregnant and they're seeking guidance, it's probably best for them to have that conversation with their healthcare provider and use those guidelines as talking points because the physicians may not be aware of those. They may be uh, looking for some professional guidance, and those are them. Um, the pro- real problem right now is that most pregnant women 
are not exercising at all, which puts baby and mom at risk, not only during the pregnancy, but uh, long uh, for long, the long term afterwards. So right now, only 6% and likely less of pregnant women are actively you know, meeting the aerobic physical activity guidelines. Um, and that's less, I mean, over, almost 20% of non-pregnant women are meeting the aerobic guidelines. If you, if you combine the resistance training guidelines in there too, I would wager the number is going to be like 1% versus eight or 9% maybe. Um, and I think again, the guidelines from the, the Canadian, uh, work group uh, are going to really help to change that narrative. Um, People will start worrying about all sorts of things like the Valsalva or like low back injury or whatever. And it's like, I can understand and appreciate this sort of risk aversiveness, but like being sedentary is a known risk. And then also like putting those narratives out unchecked or without the appropriate caveats uh, may create this sort of social learning space where you're putting a a nocebo out effectively to people who value your opinion uh, when, you know, relatively little is known. Although a few papers recently came out about Valsalva use during pregnancy where they actually measured different hemodynamic markers and like blood pressure is no different when you use a Valsalva versus not a Valsalva heart rate and cardiac response, no different. Um, so it's kind of like, which is, Kind of funny because you can't really prevent yourself from doing a Valsalva if you're doing anything like sort of strenuous. It's just like going to do that. It's an automatic response. Yeah. But, uh, and the low back pain incidence, that's actually higher in folks who are inactive during pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So yeah. in any the case. The most common question I get is, can you wear a belt when you're pregnant? Oh, yeah. I, I haven't gotten that one. Um, to me, again, fully admitting that I don't have a randomized controlled trial on like pregnancy outcomes with individuals meeting the current guidelines plus using a belt and not. Um, I don't really have strong opinions on this. My thought is that your belt's unlikely to fit for a long period of time. <laughs> yeah. And then also just the purpose of exercise during pregnancy is probably shifted away from like maximum performance. So if you can, you know, you're training at a lighter load, most likely, uh, you're training uh, goals are likely more health focused and like whether that's not just psychological health, but also geophysical health, et cetera, rather than we got a meet coming up. Um, so I would say my off the cuff response is like, you don't need to use a belt to train during pregnancy. But then my, the other part is if you want to use a belt, I don't really have any strong opposition towards that. I just don't know what the purpose is. If it's the only way that you can exercise, like, right, like that gives you the confidence to exercise, period, full stop. I think there's some underlying stuff I'd ra- like to address. Uh, but I also know that the risk of sedentarism is is more significant than any potential risk of a belt. Uh, but I just don't think you need it. It's kind of like supplement use, right? Like, can I take creatine during pregnancy? It's like, I probably wouldn't due to the risk of contamination, Um and like, again, that you're not really training for maximal performance during, uh, pregnancy, as far as like strength sports goes, you're training for maximal performance and health of your, uh, you and your family. <laughs> and I don't know that creatine helps that. So yeah. Okay. Enough, enough on that. Claire, this has been an absolute pleasure Thanks where, of course, now people want to find you on the internet. They want to, they want to talk to you. Where do they go? The best place to get in contact with me is on Instagram. That is where I am most active. It's Claire underscore Barbell Medicine. If there is a really long question and that doesn't fit in a DM, which is totally fine, you can access me via email, 
which is Claire at barbellmedicine.com. And then I am on Twitter. I'm not super active. That's just at Claire's eye. So love it. Love it. That's Claire. This has been episode 150 on the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Again, I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Hey, before you go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast, helps us bring you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. We really appreciate that. And you can catch us here next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See ya. MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.